Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it's book club day. We are joined again by cartoonist and author Joel Christian Gill, who's going to help us dig into one of the most iconic graphic novels of all time. It's Watchmen by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. The first full edition of Watchmen came out in 1987, and it is a gritty and complex vigilante tale that has since been adapted into both a television show and a film. Today, Joel and I talk about why this book is considered one of the greatest comics of all time, what Alan Moore is saying about policing, God, and America, and Joel helps answer some of my very basic questions as a comic book newbie. Please be warned, there are a few spoilers on today's episode. Make sure you listen through the end of the episode to find out what our book club pick will be for August. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you want more of The Stacks, you can join The Stacks Pack. It's just $5 a month. And when you join, you have access to our monthly virtual book club, our Stacks Pack Discord, and The Stacks bonus episodes. And this month, you're going to want to join because we're going to discuss the HBO Watchmen series as our bonus episode in July. So yeah. All you have to do is head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. All right, y'all. Now it's time for my conversation with Joel Christian Gill about Watchmen. All right, everybody, we are back. Today is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am so excited. We are joined again by graphic novelist, cartoonist, author, historian, professor, many, many qualifiers, Joel Christian Gill. Joel, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. I'm so excited you're here. We are doing Watchmen by Alan Moore with illustrations from Dave Gibbons. This is for people who don't know. First of all, let me just say this. We will have spoilers today. But for folks who don't know what this book is about, it is a satirical comic book story told in 12 chapters that were released serialized, but now it's all in one book, if you want it that way, I guess. Um, And it's the story of a group of adventurers, which are superheroes, and there's a murder mystery at the start, and we get to know about these sort of washed-up, has-been superheroes. Um, Yeah. So, Joel, we always start here. What do you think of Watchmen? Um, I think Watchmen is probably 
I mean, it's it's one of the greatest comics um, ever written. It has a lot of different themes. And I think one of the things that people miss about Watchmen initially is the idea that, so like Alan Moore often says that people come up to me and say, Rorschach is my favorite character. And he always tells them like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> now that you think is your favorite character. Because Rorschach is actually supposed to be a, a critique of Batman. Um, mm-hmm. Batman is a horrible, horrible superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, as I have said, and if anybody's ever heard me talk about superheroes, you you know that I like I, you know what, if I was a kid and I had seen Black Panther, I would have grown up wanting to be T'Challa as opposed to um Batman because T'Challa takes care of his people, as you know, he uses his money and resources to create a utopia. Batman basically does all this research and development to beat up poor people. And Rorschach is basically the you know, like the real life version of what Batman would be, right? Mm-hmm. He's like an incel. He's sitting in his basement. You know, he's beating up poor people. He's torturing people. He is basically Nixon's law and order, um, law and order campaign taken to its fullest extreme, right? Mm-hmm. Like police need extra legal legal activity, um, legal um, extra legal um, powers, and so they they use that. So, um, at its core, Watchmen is not really plot driven. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this starts with the the murder of the comedian, but it's not really about the murder of the comedian. It's about a descent into madness. And it's about these two extreme versions of law and order. One is like an extreme version of a utopia by Ozymandias. The other one is an extreme version of um, of fascism by um, Rorschach. And while Ozymandias eventually wins, by killing what four million people or eight million people at the end of the book, he 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 wins. Um, Rorschach also wins too because if you watch the TV show, the the natural progression of Rorschach's ideology is white supremacy, and so um, that I mean I can go into more of it, but um, at its core, I think it's a uh, it's you know Alan Moore originally wanted to use. Um, actual old um, golden age superheroes, Mm. Um, but DC didn't want him to do that. So he created these superheroes. I will say one more thing that I think is really important. I think Dr. Manhattan is an, is a metaphor for God. Um, Because Mm -hmm. when you read Dr. Manhattan, he has all of the powers of God. He is a God-like character, but he absolutely doesn't care. Um, He just sort of exists in this plane. And I think that's, you know, like at at its core, I think that Watchmen is a character study of five individual peoples who have God complexes and one person who actually is a God but doesn't care. Right. That's good. Okay. Let me give you my initial thoughts and then we'll dig in. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) My initial thoughts are less smart because so this was my first read of this book. Um, I've never read any superhero anything. I have only ever seen two superhero movies. One is the first Black Panther and the other is The Incredibles. So that is the extent of my superhero knowledge. And I have seen the Watchmen TV show now twice. I watched it long before I read the book, like right when it came out. And then I watched all of it in the last 36 hours Um, because I wanted to just see what they did. And we don't don't have to talk about that, but maybe we will. Um, I loved the beginning and the end of this book. I felt very lost in the middle sections. And I think my understanding of why I felt lost is because the middle stuff is a lot to do with like playing with the superhero 
form and like a lot of inside baseball about superhero stuff. So it felt like really talky to me, but I didn't get it. I loved seeing how all of the characters, like their backstories and like seeing how they all viewed the world through these very specific like lenses. And I was really taken by this idea that a lot of superheroes don't have superpowers. That is news to me. I didn't know that. I thought Batman was the only one. I thought all the other superheroes had real superpowers. So I was really interested in this idea of like everyday people who just like wanted to be cops, I guess, like but like not being up. I mean, I feel like the thing that I took away from this, and obviously this is me reading it in 2023 with my own personal lens and politics and everything, but like this also felt like a huge indictment on the police system. Like the police are so useless in this and they hate the superheroes, but the superheroes are also just useless police officers. Everyone's like showing up after the fact and everyone has all their own shit and they're not helping. And like, no one's doing anything about the real problem, I guess, until Ozymandias, but like his choice is a little extreme and we can get to that later. But so I just, I felt like, and I liked that it was satire. Like I could pick up on that. I could tell that it was like a joke on a thing, like, or like a queering of a form. Like I could tell that, but, and so I liked all of that, but the middle, I was like chapter four. Chapter three, I hated. Chapter like seven, eight, six, seven, eight. I was like, I don't know where I am. Like, I got really lost in there. Um, so yeah, there. I mean, there is a lot of really dense stuff, and I think you know, it's really interesting. I think if you if you boil down Watchmen to um, the the metaphor of the tales of the Black Freighter, because um, the tales of the well, Black- so I didn't understand that. At all. I couldn't follow that story at all. I had no fucking clue. That's the comic within the comic. Yeah. So the Tales of the Black Freighter is a metaphor. It's so I compare that to um to Kill a Mockingbird and the scene in which Atticus has to kill, you know, Tim Johnson, the dog, right? The dog that's everybody's okay. friend. And um it used to be like the town dog, and everybody okay. loved him, and he was just like this, you know, this stray, this lovable stray, but he has rabies. Um, okay. And rabies actually causes him to to just bite anybody, right? And he has to take he has to be put down. And Atticus is the only one to do it, right? And the and that is a metaphor for the entire story because Tim Johnson is a is the town, right? right. Everybody loved him. Everything's good. And the disease that the town has is racism, but the disease that Tim Johnson has is um, rabies. So the tales of the Black Freighter is exactly that. Here are these people who have these really good intentions and they go out into the world to do these things and they're doing them in spite of this corrupt system, right? There, there's this mm-hmm. corrupt system and they're trying to do these things in, in the corrupt system. But eventually he goes right back to the corrupt system. He just sort of leans into it. Ozymandias mm-hmm. does it and Rorschach does it in, in just two different extreme ways. And so when you look at how, like, I think it's really interesting. He starts off with the murder of the comedian. Um, and so you're following this idea that the murder of the comedian is actually the thing. But by the time you find out who murdered the comedian, it doesn't really matter anymore. Right. Because it's just a red herring. It's just um, it's a basically a way in which to look at, you know, what happens when you give people too much power, which is um, Dr. Manhattan. And he just doesn't care what happens when people have no power and they sort of exude their power with from this moral superiority, which is um, which is Rorschach. And then you've got all these little people in the middle who don't really matter in a lot of ways. Right. They just don't really count. Um, And they don't really even. 
Um, they don't even put a dent in the system. This is like my, this is why I think it's really gr- brilliant because the critique of superheroes and we're all like, and this is in, this was in the 1980s, right? So everybody's trying to make serious superheroes and all this other stuff. And Alan Moore is like, yeah, but this is like, it's all bullshit, right? If you saw somebody yeah. like the only people who dress up in costumes and give themselves names and go out in the middle of the night doing things are serial killers, right? It's Mm -hmm. not real superheroes, right? Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. if you are a regular person and you want to save the world and you have a, you know, like you want to go do something good, you become a police officer. You don't become Batman, right? Right, right, right. And I do want to say also, like, I really liked the book. I, I like... After I was reading it and then watching the show and everything, I just kept being like, oh my God, this is so smart. Like, I just felt like it was so smart. And like, you know, we talk about getting it a lot on the show. Like, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I didn't get everything. And I definitely know I didn't get everything in this book, but I loved not getting it. Like, I loved like looking at the pictures and being like, oh, and like, I felt really smart because I knew that Rorschach was that redhead guy holding the sign from the first scene. I was like, oh, that's him. And then I like went back and I was like trying to see a glimpse of like the side of his face. And I was like, I think that's the redhead guy. So I was like, oh, I got it. I got it. Apparently not everybody gets that. Not everybody gets that and everybody. And, and that's the thing. I think people leave, leave thinking Rorschach is the hero, but he's not right. There are no, right. Who were, okay. But who were you rooting for? Like, can you go back to the first time you read this? Do you remember who you were rooting for or like who your allegiance was with? I don't think I'm rooted for anybody. I think when I, when I originally read this book, um, I just wanted to see more of Dr. Manhattan. Right. Mm. I think that's the, that's the thing that I kept thinking. I want to see more like, why doesn't he, he knows everything. He could fix everything. Right. We're, Dr. Manhattan knows from the beginning what the entire story is. Right. He right. knows what's going to happen and he doesn't change anything. Right. Right. That, that really amazing line is that we're all puppets, Lori. I just can see the strings. Right. Right. Like you can't right. do anything about it because it's already happened. Everything will be and what be. So I like, I was really fascinated by Dr. Manhattan um, as like a character who's all knowing, all powerful and can do anything, but just doesn't. Right. Right. And I think like, so for me, I, in the beginning was rooting for Rorschach because that's, that's who we start with. Right. Like that's who you're like, I come in, I'm assuming this is my protagonist. Like this is the guy whose journal we're in. This is the story that we're in. And then, you know, as we keep going, I'm like, I, this guy's like, I think I took a note that was like, this guy's really giving Reaganomics over here. Like, I was like, I don't like, like, you know, I knew that something was not right or like Nixon's America or something. And then I didn't know who to root for. And I did, cause I didn't ever want to root for, um, Adrian Veidt. Like I never felt like I liked him. Like there was always something about him that I didn't really care for. And I feel like, I mean, one of the big problems with the book for me is like the women are, <laughs> They're one to make them. It's not great for the ladies. They're being raped. They're being beaten in the streets. Nobody is helping them. Nobody cares. Lori is just like, yeah, Dan, let's have sex. I love sex. I'm Lori. Which is what's so great about the show because Lori gets a full makeover. Yeah. And um, she becomes really, she becomes a different person, but I think, it, and she becomes an FBI agent. And I yes, think it's and real, she becomes her dad. Yeah. And the thing that I think is really interesting about... I mean, it's, you know, like I always, whenever I talk about books, specifically things that were written before right now, I say mm-hmm. everything up until right now was garbage. I have hope from, from this point, all this point forward. Right. right? Because like whenever it's almost like everything's going to be sexist, racist, homophobic, right? Like it's just going to have those things in there. 
Um, and that doesn't excuse it. It's just to acknowledge that those things are there. Sure. Um, and, and so, but yeah, it's interesting in a, it's interesting though, because I feel like he flips so many things like of my understanding about superheroes. And you would think that he would kind of flip the women characters because you have Catwoman and you have like Wonder Woman in there and they're in these little costumes and they're like, whatever. And he sort of just like kept that, you know, which I thought was interesting. Like, I didn't feel like he said anything about the women characters that was different than what I would have assumed knowing nothing about women characters going in. Yeah. And I think, I think that's just a function of um, patriarchy, right? And male privilege, like the idea of not really thinking about it and not really considering it. Sure, yeah. And and Alan Moore, um, who's in his, I think he's in his late 60s, early 70s, yeah. Um, is at a point in his career where he doesn't even do comics anymore. He doesn't talk about it. He just bathmouths comics all the time. But the thing <laughs> that, yeah, but what he actually, but what, and so like he doesn't, doesn't evolve, right? Like there are a lot of people who have evolved from that mm-hmm. time point, like who's mm-hmm. written in the 1980s and they've evolved and they wouldn't do the same thing again. And I don't, I don't think he's one, I don't think he's evolved as a, as a, as a, on that front, but I don't know. Cause he's never written any, he hasn't written anything else. Um, well, he wrote, um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and um, he wrote um, from V for Vendetta, V right? for Vendetta, and um, which is really good, and it's more about you know politics and the political state, and it's sort of George Orwellian. Um, and he, and wrote, he wrote the Batman that you like, the joke. No, he, oh, he wrote yeah, the Killing Joke, which is really Killing good. Joke. Yeah, he wrote the Killing. He wrote a lot of stuff. I mean, he wrote a lot of comics in the in the eighties. He wrote Swamp Thing um, all through the eighties. Oh, From Hell, he wrote From Hell. Um, which became a movie with Johnny Depp in it. Um, and he's talked about how much he does not want his things to be adapted and how much he hates that. Yeah, he hates the adap- adaptations. And I think he, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I haven't read, I mean, I kind of tuned him out after a while because okay. he's a little crazy um, okay. in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't know what he said about the TV show, but I thought the TV show picked up, the Watchmen TV show picked up the themes that yeah. he was running with really well. I think so too. I mean, I think what he had said about adaptations is like he didn't want people to do them because he didn't want people to think that comics had to be on screen, like that comics could be comics and they could be on the page and that they can do special things in that place that can't be done on the screen. And that like this idea that everything has to be turned into some sort of film adaptation, which I do respect because I do think there's this assumption that like, oh, if the book is good, we should make a movie out of it or if the book is bad. And I feel like some things are just books. Like, yeah, so I, and get I think, that. I think but, but I will say this. I think that television, specifically serialized television, is the closest it's, adaptation yes. to comics I mean, I don't I think it, that's why the the first the first Watchmen movie was such a hot mess. It was terrible. Like if anybody's mm. watched it, you know, like the 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 book Watchmen is really about a character study of all these characters, and mm-hmm. it's not really plot driven, and it's not really about fighting or superpowers. It's about political um, philosophies. It's about fascism and this utopian society, which would could be described as like. Um, socialist or communist. It's about like these sort of extremes and how we end up by going so far to the extreme, we do the exact same things. It's that circular mm-hmm. thing that you've probably mm-hmm. heard in political theory a lot, where people go so far to these either extremes that they right. end up at the same point, which is totality. It's the anti-vaxxer conundrum, where yeah. it's like you have far right-wing people and then far left people who are all anti-vaxxers together. Exactly, right? And I think um, when you, because when you follow that ideology, it becomes totalitarianism, right? And I think that that's what Ozymandias ends up with. And I think if given Rorschach the chance, he would have end up, ended up with the exact same thing. 
And so you so, think Rorschach and Ozymandias would have ended up together? Yes, I think they would eventually. Yeah, I think given the opportunity, they would have both agreed um, on the on the on the means, and which is what happens in the TV show, right? Rorschach's mm-hmm. ideology merges with Ozymandias's, but become like we're going to take and turn you know, Dr. Manhattan's power into our power. And we're going to use that to remake the world in our image, right? It's basically the exact same thing, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant, the way in which they did that. Um, I think there's a number, I don't know, did you notice that all of the panels in um, Watchmen were a nine-panel grid? I literally, so I have notes about form for you. I have questions about nine panels. I have questions about the images like I like I loved how the images didn't always match the words and it was like jumping around in time. I thought that was super cool. And then I also noticed that like the speech bubbles were different for different people. Like obviously Dr. Manhattan's were blue, but Rorschach got like squigglies and then Ozymandias got like really clean ones. And like, so I, I noticed some things, but I don't know what nine panels means. I just noticed that sometimes it was nine. And then like when there were really big moments, it might be like a really long, tall one or like a fat one, or of course- with the squid, it's like the whole page. And that's like, right. So that's the thing (laughs) I want you to connect to, right? So it's a nine panel grid. So it's always set up in that nine panel. So sometimes the panels are three across. Sometimes they're all nine panels, but they're always in that rectangular shape, but they Mm -hmm. don't really change the shape, right? Like Mm -hmm. some of them become square and then some of them become right. They're always in that nine panel grid, which I think was very purposeful. Because once you get to the final, like the climax, it's just a few pages of like mm-hmm. full bleed like drawings, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's really interesting and in a, in a, in a way in which to sort of use the medium of comics to show like, th- it's almost like this is your big moment. This is when all of yeah. the music plays. This is when you get the full like panoramic view, right? This is exactly yeah. that moment. Um, and they do it very carefully, right? You don't do that. And then like the word balloons, which is uh, which is what I was talking about with uh, I'm a serious polyp and how using different word balloons and word bubbles for different people sets a tone for that. It like makes mm-hmm. it, it gives you a visual clue to who's talking sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can you can do that when you're writing. Right. By just saying she said like Tracy she said, said yeah, Tracy said versus Joel said. Or you could do that in film because you can see those people happening. So how do you do that with um with comics, well, you change the word balloons and you change the colors. The other thing that you probably noticed is a thing called non-adjacent sequencing. In comics, when you use an image from some from some other place in the book and you mm-hmm. place it here, but you put new words on it. Like so a flashback. It, yeah, it's like a flashback. But it We actually, got that a lot with the comedian's yeah. murder. So you get this flashback, but they put different words on the flashback to give you a different sense Mm-hmm. of that whole panel mm-hmm. um and having and so let me just give you a little bit about how like this is my the quick lecture for all the people who've never read comics and are just like jumping in things to look for so comics have to do this really interesting dance like you have to have the words have to say something and the pictures have to show something and they have to co- sort of like merge into a thing that tells a whole new story and i'll give mm-hmm. you a really good example if i were to say Tracy came onto the call and she was angry, right? That's not what you, that's not good writing, right? Mm -hmm. That's because you're supposed to show, not tell. So if I say Tracy came onto the call and she was whipping pages and turning the chair over and she plopped down and then she put on, like angrily put on her headphones, that would be showing, right? Mm -hmm. That would be showing you. 
But in comics, I can't do that. I can't say Tracy came into the call angry and show you being angry because that's redundant, right? Mm-hmm. So I can mm-hmm. show you come in, ripping up things, putting on angrily putting on headphones, sitting down, and then I could say something like they were out of mocha lattes at Starbucks, right? Ugh, <laughs> the worst. How that gives you a, and so like that individual thing gives you a much more complete understanding of the story. And so, which is different from movies, right? Because you don't do that in movies. You can't have words saying something that the pictures are doing, right? Right. Because you got, you, it's just a different way of sort of expressing things. And so comics does that. And the best comics do that really well, where they're giving you a little information um, that enhances the picture, but doesn't redundantly show the picture unless you use it specifically to show Mm. sort of qualities. And I think that's one of the things that's the like delicate dance. This is when I say like people always say they're, they're afraid to call me a cartoonist because it seems like less than it's like, if you think Mm -hmm. it's less than try it, because that's the delicate dance you have to do. How do I show you something and tell you something that all those two things come together to do something Mm -hmm. that neither one of those things can do differently? Well, and that makes me also think of like the challenge when you like, especially in a book like this, where you have so many scenes where people are just talking to each other. Cause like, you don't just want to draw people like standing talking, right? right? Like that's super boring to look at. And so I feel like, but this story is really dependent on that because it is about ideology and people talking things through. Like we have that whole scene with Lori and Dr. Manhattan where they're fighting on Mars. And it's like the images are showing us like drawn back or up close and all this different stuff. But really they're just having like a conversation. And in a movie, you'd probably just have them sitting there talking. But in this, it's like, you. Can't, I don't want to just flip through nine, nine images on a page for 10 pages. And so like, there's some really create like cool stuff that I definitely notice of like, oh, he's trying to like paint a scene for us and it he knows like he knows we know they're talking so he gets to like kind of play around and i guess he in this case is dave gibbons yeah and I, um, yeah and and so the thing that i would add to that which i think is really interesting is in comics there's this thing called the one foot rule not everybody follows it and so the one foot rule means that on any given page you want to have at least one foot on every page what that does is it forces you not to have the boring talking heads like over and over and over again. Um, you want to sort of pan back and forth because if you're having, if you're filming a scene um, and you film two people talking, you still don't show just those two people talking in the entire right. scene. You pan to one person, you pan to the other person. Sometimes you're looking at one person, getting their reaction while the other person's talking. You scroll out, you do all the right. different things. Right. But in comics, you, you can't do that, right? Because you have one scene. So how do you mimic that variation in scene? And how do you do that to add interest to the page? So this is where, you know, this is where art and design comes into play when you're thinking about your compositions and your, um, and your pages. So it's not about just showing the person talking. It's about, you know, like I always say my definition of comics is images that are adjacently put together in an aesthetically interesting way in the purpose of forming a story, right? Because that's what it has to do. It has to form the story. So giving you the context of that, you're always being on Mars, giving you the context that, you know, these two people are talking, giving the context of like, who's bigger, who's smaller, like all of Mm -hmm. those things. It's all about giving you the perspective and making you feel that space. And I think the one of the best examples 
I don't remember what chapter it is. I just have a lecture on it. So I just show the image <laughs> talking about it. But it's the nine panel page where Dr. Manhattan is talking about where he is when he first goes to Mars. And he's talking in present tense, past tense, and future tense. And he says things like, I'm there 12 seconds from now. I'm at Gila Flats taking this picture. I'm on Mars. I am looking at the picture in my hand. The picture is in my hand. I drop it to the Oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Of yeah. course. And he, and the picture. Yeah. And he keeps talking about that whole thing. That page. That that's chapter. Page. This this page. Yeah, that's it. It's it's chapter four. It's the first page of chapter four. Yeah. And that page, if you look at the way that page is, is arranged, you've got the nine panel grid and mm-hmm. everything around that nine panel grid is Dr. Manhattan searching for mm-hmm. his humanity. And that one page, that one panel in the direct center is mm-hmm. his humanity. That's his connection to his humanity. Mm, the woman. Yep. No, it, it's yes. not necessarily the woman, just that moment. Because oh, that moment is his last human moment, right? Before he becomes Dr. Manhattan. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I see. I see. Um, okay, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, I read something that I just want to tell people about at home because I thought it was cool to end our form conversation. Chapter five, which is called Fearful Symmetry. Apparently, if you look at this, the the grids are symmetrical from the first page to the last page of the chapter. So you have like a nine nine grid on the first page, and then the last page is a nine grid. And it like, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that I, and I think you know just. 
I mean, I don't know. Like, I could gush about this book for so much. There's just so many like <laughs> little things that people did, which is why it's like one of the 100 greatest novels of all time. Um, you know the, you know, and there's just like a lot of like little tiny like I can't. So like the the Black Freighter, because you said you didn't get the Black Freighter. Not at all. Not um, at, not at all. Did it did it make sense when I explained it though? Like it's that it does, but I couldn't follow that story. I think because of the way that it was always interspliced with the guy on the street who was selling the magazines, right? Like those, and then it was like I couldn't. I started trying to read it where I would read all of the Black Freighter text at once to try to figure out what the story was, but I just couldn't keep those two things in my head. Like it just it didn't work. It did. I couldn't do it. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it's a skill. Well, did you recognize the in the Watchmen television show, they do a similar thing with the TV show? The TV show, I did. But I also listened to Damon Lilloff do the podcast with the guy. Like they did like an official Watchmen podcast. And so they talked about it. And yeah. so I did listen to that. So I don't know if I would have recognized it, oh, the okay. show within the show. I think I think they told me. I mean, they even said it on the show. They're like, you did a comic within a comic in the book. And then you guys did a... Uh, the show within a show and I was like oh yeah I, I think that. I mean there's just like I, I don't know that so when after you watch after you read Watchmen and then watched the tv show did you connect anything yes. like like you see all of like the other little things that were happening oh my god I after I watched the first episode I was like holy shit this is great. I liked Watchmen the first time, but I didn't fucking know what a Lori Blake was. Yeah. I didn't like, I didn't know who, like when I first saw Jeremy Irons in the show, I was like, that's Adrian Veidt. Like I recognized it right away. Absolutely. I remember when I watched the show the first time, I was literally like, what the fuck is this guy? Who the fuck is this? Like I, like I had no clue. I didn't understand what Dr. Manhattan was. Like I didn't understand the conversation he was having with Regina King about like meeting her and knowing her. Like I did, all of that to me was just like, what? And it made sense, but it didn't, I cried when I watched the show the second time. I was so moved by the ring scene. And then also the scene where he's like, I'm in all of our moments together at once. And I was like, <laughs> right. He's saying all of those things or he's laughing about something and it like goes back. And I was well, like, because he's like human for the first time in a way that he's not in the book, and which I, you kind of get, at. which is really funny when I watched the TV show. Um, the episode, you know, a God walks into a bar that uh, that yes. whole episode when he walks into the bar, like I went to bed that night thinking to myself, how do I sleep now knowing God is black? <laughs> like they did such a great job with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, there's like a lot of little things that they take, like, um, you know, the politicians who, you know, like the, the liberal politicians are who are also just white supremacists as well. Mm -hmm. um, like I thought was just amazing. Um, because that's the kind of thing that happens in the book, right? You've got, right. um, there's no real good, good guys, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the, the nuclear clock counting down because Dr. Manhattan is left. And what are we going to do about this? How, like now he's gone and like, we're going to go into nuclear war. And, and so like, you've got, so like, if you look at the solutions, a nuclear war. So Adrian Veidt is trying to stop a nuclear war that will kill millions of people by killing millions of people. Like, mm -hmm. like there's no, right. that's, there's no, like, but at the, at the end, right. It's almost like he's, he did it. Right. But there's no saying that a nuclear war wouldn't have actually done the exact same thing. And but so, here's my question. Why did he do a squid? Do we know? Is there an answer to no, that? No, I think it was just like, he was creating a monster. Like it was just okay. a monster that he was trying to create to show like, 
um, that uh, terrible thing was about to happen and we all needed to unite around it. I mean, and like, what's crazy is this is before 9-11, right? I know. This is before 9-11. And like, you can hear conservative politicians talking about this exact same thing. We've gotten this thing now. We should all come together. Like that's Adrian. Well, COVID. Yeah. What about COVID? COVID? I mean, I think you can't read this book now in 2023 and believe that what Adrian Veidt did is a solution, knowing that we know well, knowing what we know after COVID, obviously COVID is slightly different than like some sort of terror attack or like some sort of supernatural one moment event. Like I think 9-11 hit different than COVID, even though way more people died from COVID because it was like the shock of this moment and this visual thing that you could see and like witnessing that and experiencing that. But I, I, I mean... I'm like, oh, that's so nice, Adrian. Viet. you think you did something by killing three million people? Well, guess what? Nuclear war tomorrow. See it tomorrow. Nobody fucking cares. Yeah, nobody and cares. And it's really, I don't like. I don't think I even made the connection to 9/11, or like how like politicians talk about like we all need to come. Like this is going to bring us all together when it actually just further divisions. Right. For, yes, of course. There's because the thing about Americans, which is what I can speak to, but I, I wonder if it extends to more people in humanity, but I'll speak to America, is that we don't agree on a lot of things. And so we're going to see everything differently. Like, just like you and I are going to see different things in this book differently. Like, you think a huge event is going to make us come together. It's just going to show all the places that we have different beliefs and like all of the different solutions that anyone would come up with. Because if it's Rorschach, Rorschach who comes up with the solution, what's he going to do? Like, what's his solution to the problem? His, yeah, his solution is law and order, right? His solution right. is like... But I, what's his solution to the nuclear bomb, I mean? It's right? Because like, it's like... Yeah, law and order. Like, that's the idea. It's law and order, right? Like, but who's have, he going to lock up? Like, what's he going to do? Who would Rorschach lock up? I think I think he would lock up anybody. He, he would be that moral absolutist, absolution that um what's his name talks about whose name i'm forgetting now but he writes in Dan his memoir Dreiberg. yeah when he writes in his oh, when he writes oh, in his memoir in the middle he's talking about the hooded like, justice yeah, or, like, um under the hood guy. under the hood yeah where he talks now he's not hooded justice he he's is he's not hooded justice he's the other he's, guy yeah he um, is the i think he was the original owl the owl yeah, yeah. he was the original owl which is also Hollis Mason yeah, under the he, hood he basically writes from this like um like white nationalist like you know american you know, American Christian value sort of place. Right. Silent uh, generation. Vibes. Yeah. Like he's got all of those exact same things. And so I think when you look at that, it's like the people that don't conform, right. It's the, mm-hmm. it's, you know, black and Brown people, it's queer people. It's like anybody who they, who they deem to be, um, who they deem to be, um, counterculture in a lot of ways, right. right? Or counterculture or just different. Right. I mean, you take the default and you, and it's, it's starting as white as the default. And then everybody who doesn't fit that, who doesn't mold to that, to that conformity is, is also not right. But when you mm. get what you get now in modern day politics, it's not a conformity of like, like what people look like. It's a conformity of like your belief in capitalism or your belief in these bad ideas. And I think that Rorschach's ideology is that I think he is, he is Reaganomics. He is, you know, the mm-hmm. Reagan era. He is Nixon's um, law and order. He is um, Goldwater's ideas. He is all of those things wrapped up. He is Margaret Thatcher. He is all of right. these people in this one character that people read and they miss the fucking point, like the TV, like the movie did, right? It's like garter belts and ninja fights. And that's not what it was about. Um, right. Because he is the ultimate villain 
supervillain of all things 1980s if you're of a certain political ideology, right? And then Ozymandias is the ultimate 1980s villain of your if you're of a different political ideology. Yeah. So two two different people will look at that and think Ozymandias was the good guy, although he killed a bunch of people. And some people would say Rorschach was the good guy, although he would have killed a bunch. Like he like his idea. I mean, he was killing people along the way, right? Yeah. I guess I guess sort of. I wonder if Alan Moore felt like he had to make Ozymandias kill a bunch of people because otherwise it didn't feel like a fair fight between them. Like about like because like otherwise Adrian Veidt doesn't feel like a worthy adversary, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it is almost. You know, maybe. I don't know. Like, like he's too clean otherwise. He's too perfect. Yeah. He doesn't like because Dan Dryberg, the, the second owl guy, he's sort of a nothing person, right? Like he's sort of he doesn't he's not on the same level as Rorschach and and Ozymandias. Like he is not he's more being he's treated more like the women, this sort of like secondary character who like is there, but like nobody takes him seriously. Nobody cares. Nobody really engages with him. They're just like, Dan, get in the fucking car, like get in your little spaceship. Let's go. I mean, like Dan doesn't even come up with like Lori comes up with the idea to go bust out Rorschach. Like Dan is sort of the most emasculated, if you will, man. He's sort of treated like a nothing. And I feel like if, the only way that Alan Moore can have balance with Rorschach and show how terrible he is or whatever is by having someone who is the opposite of him. But I think because of who Alan Moore is, from my understanding, is that if Adrian Veidt doesn't do something bad in some way or something questionable, then it, the fight's not fair. They're not. It, it's too clear that Adrian's way is the right way. Oh, do you know I, what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. See what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. And so I like it's one of those things where I think um, and this is an interesting question just in general about like, how do you come up? What, what happens when you come up with a story? Um, mm-hmm. Because I think about this in terms of like myself, when I'm thinking about stories, do you start with an idea? Um, like, does he start with like the person who's supposed to be the good guy kills the 3 million people, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then get there. Or does he start with the person who's supposed to be a, the good guy is also, I think he probably started with Rorschach first. I think so too. Yeah, I think Rorschach was probably the, because Rorschach, you know, like this guy who's completely obsessed with the crime and his novels, like they'll reach it, they'll, they'll scream and they'll, and I'll Mm -hmm. say, and I'll whisper, no, you know, (laughs) never, never, right. Never compromise. Yeah. um, Never back down. Right. Um, He's like in the, in the real world, Rorschach would be wearing like lions, not sheep t-shirts and like American (laughs) flag shirts with the flag pointing down. (laughs) Uh, or the 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 blue, I guess not the blue line because yeah, he hates the, the police. Yeah, the blue line. Like, he, yeah, he yeah. hates the police because they're not effective. Um, but that that's and he's not wrong stuff. there. That's that's the ideological circle coming together yeah. with him and I. I'm like, well, he's not wrong about the police. Yeah, the to police, be fair, yeah, the police are ineffective. But the I think he starts. I think he starts with Rorschach also because Rorschach. Because like he's created this world where we've won v- America's won Vietnam. Um, Nixon is back for more his third term or whatever. Like, I think that Rorschach fits perfectly into the world that he created, which is why I think he started there because the whole world is built to support that character. Yeah. No, you I, know? Think I think you're right. And I think it's really interesting, you know, that, that play on the idea of Nixon being, having a third term because Nixon, if you look at Nixon's politics and what was happening in the 1970s and the late 1970s and like what he was doing, um, you know, like I think people will be talking about him like 
I don't think if, if Nixon had, I don't think Reagan would have existed if Nixon had not been in, um, threatened to impeach. I think, I don't think we would have got Reagan. I think we would have gotten some, I think we would have gotten someone like Robert Redford, right? I think we would have gotten mm. that, <laughs> that, that extreme liberal um, and that extreme, like not extreme liberal. Sure. I mean, I guess it is extreme liberal because it doesn't really, um, like, I think I, I just find difference between liberal and a leftist, but uh, like, yeah. it's just basically a soft neoliberal. Um, it's sort of like a Gavin Newsom moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's uh, how I take him. Would I would take it. Yeah, but it was, you know, I don't know. It's it's um, they actually I don't. Did you catch the um, the Easter egg in the book? Um, Robert Redford runs for president in the book. Yes, of course. But, you know, it said RR runs for president. I was like, oh, Ronald Reagan. And then I was like, then when I started watching the show and it was like Redford Asians, I was like, oh, that was fucking Robert Redford, you idiot. I was like, oh, Ronald Reagan. Of course he runs for president. <laughs> but wait, what about the part where it's like towards the end? It's like at the very, very end with the with the guy, the Seymour and the journalist guy. And he's like. Seymour, we do not dignify absurdities with coverage. This is still America, goddammit. Who wants a cowboy actor in the White House? Which to me is like, first of all, Ronald Reagan, but second of all, Trump. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's, it's crazy that people like Alan Moore, who can take, you know, something as as pop culture as superhero and turn it into a political conversation about extreme ideologies. And and looking at these ideologies and and finding fault in them and having real critiques of both side both arguments right you always yeah. hear these both sides arguments right like it's both sides um, but I don't think and he's not but it's not a both sides argument in the, in the sense that we typically talk about like right versus left he's talking about these ideologies which are not necessarily right and left it's almost like in America specifically we have um, and it's probably mirrored a lot in in England as well we have uh, center, we have a, a center, you know, just, just right of center party. Uh, I mean, we have a far left, far right party. And then we have a just left of center, right? We have these, mm, like, I think we could say the Democrats are just right of center to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. we have a far right and a just right of center. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, like we have those two things, right? We don't actually have, so if we're talking about those two polar, those, those two polarities, right? The far right, and the just right of center, like there's a lot of both sides you can talk about in that terms, right? But if you add leftist or socialist ideology into that, and I'm not going as far as communism, I personally don't think communism would work, but socialism works. We've seen proof of it, right? So if you take those things and you add it that, you don't have the same contradictions in policies that you would have in those two things. And so when Alan Moore is writing this, he's critiquing that right wing ideology right because ozymandias his right-wing ideology takes him his his quote-unquote utopian society is killing three million people rorschach's utopian society is killing all of the people who don't conform the queer people the prostitutes the pimps the drug dealers the these people like just killing an entire group of people and nobody in the middle is talking about what real world solutions to these problems would be right i feel like i feel like adrian Veidt's solution is not killing 3 million people or his utopia is not killing 3 million people. His utopia just starts with the death of 3 million people, right? That's just him getting started. Then once he does this, 
allegedly he can go on and fix everything, right? Isn't that what he says? Yeah, but then he does it, right? Then he does. Well, no, he doesn't do that. But like, I think to him, this three million, the three million dead is just necessary evil, right? It's what we heard about, like, oh, old people will be willing to die of COVID for for young people, of course. Like, let's kill the old people and the disabled people and the high risk because, like, then we'll be fine. But that's not what he's working towards. He's working towards whatever comes next. He just never, he never gets there. You mentioned earlier that when in the movie, when you saw, uh, when you realized that Dr. Manhattan was black and that God was black, that that stuck with you. For me in the book, the line that literally I had to stop and be like, I need a break is God exists and he's American. That will haunt me forever. Yeah. That is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard as an American. I'm like, I don't, I don't want that. But I do. And I feel like, yeah, like to your point that Dr. Manhattan is sort of this God character. I think like one of the one of the biggest debates I ever remember having in college with a friend of mine who was very religious at the time was about this idea of God and like the three, you know, God is supposed to be all knowing, all powerful and all good. That's what that's what you're taught in Christianity. But God can't be all three of those things, because if you're all good and all knowing, then you would change things. And if you don't change things, then you're not all powerful, right? Like there's like, you can't be all three of those things at once. And I think this idea that if God exists, that he is, and I'm saying he only because that is the God that we're presented with in this book, um, that he is American just adds a layer that I'm not I'm not interested in. Like, is that, does that mean God is a capitalist? Does that mean God is a white supremacist? Like, what does it mean to be American? And if God is all of those things, is all of the things that it means to be quote unquote American, I'm not sure that I want that for I mean, God. absolutely. That's terrifying. And I mean, it does terrify the world, right? It, it, you know, in, the, in a lot of ways, it keeps, you know, it, it makes American values the standard values that we talk about. Um, that that become like implanted, right? It becomes like our 51st state, Vietnam, like the American values are planted on that and it becomes like a capitalist society. And I think, um, you know, like the idea, I love, like I, you know, my, the line that sticks with me in the book, which I think is just really brilliant, is like, we're all puppets, Lori. I, ju- I can just see the strings. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I think there's a comment on the idea that Dr. Manhattan um, is all powerful, is all knowing, and is neither good nor evil, right? Mm. I think that's the thing that I think that's the smart decision that I think um, Ellen Moore makes is to make this being more aptly, you know, like more complicated, right? Because um, right. Dr. Manhattan makes mistakes as an all powerful, all knowing pe- person. Um, he was just a regular dude before that. We've got that argument about the divine, the, the the watchmaker. His father was a divine, was a watchmaker, which is like that divine watchmaker ideology that came out of like what what um who God really was. Um, and there's like this sort of great universal thing. And I think, um, yeah, I think um, Dr. Manhattan being American is terrible. Well, okay, let me ask you about also. So I thought Dr. Manhattan, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this has something to do with his name, had to do with the Manhattan Project because he's like a nuclear thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's how I, I mean, as soon as I saw the name, I was like, hmm, nuclear bomb, anyone? Let me tell uh, you this before you ask me your question, though. Did you notice that the, the blood covering the smiley face um, connection to the, the, the nuclear clock com- doesn't turn back at the end? Right. Because it does because we actually end up killing the three million. It actually end up. Kill- oh, it doesn't like after the because that's like chapter 11. You mean yeah. it doesn't start. Yeah. Well, so I, I, that's a 
you know, we're supposed to avert a nuclear disaster, but we get this other thing, which is basically a nuclear disaster. Like, what's the difference between a bomb hitting New York and this like alien hitting New York? Right. Well, so that's my question. I want to this. I guess this sort of also ties into the title. I am not the best reader when it comes to like these ideas, like bigger theme ideas that are played with. So like I wasn't quite sure that I understood the clock and the watch and then, of course, Watchmen. And I obviously understand like who watches the Watchmen. Like I understood I understood the metaphor of watching with your eyes, but I had a harder time with the metaphor for watching that meant like a watch, a clock, timekeeping. So the timekeeping is about the nuclear clock um, and how close Right, but like his dad is a watchmaker. And that's connection to the divine watchmaker ideology that some conservative Christians sort of say that there's a divine watchmaker that's sort of like in the idea of intelligent design that the, um, Douglas Adams, Adams says this in, a, in the best way possible. It's kind of like a puddle, like a hole being in the ground. And because water fills it, fills the ground, fills that puddle perfectly. It must, the puddle must've been, the hole must've been made for the water, um, which is kind mm. of a ridiculous idea. Um, but people say the, there's this idea that, you know, like a watch doesn't evolve independently, right? You can't have a spring and then a mechanism and all those things come together to create a watch, mm-hmm. right? You actually mm-hmm. have to like think intelligently and put them all together. Um, and that's how it, that's how it does. And so when you, and so like, there's a, there's a critique of that because the divine watchmaker makes the, the God, right. Um, mm-hmm. And then the God who knows everything and the, and is involved in the, and can do everything does mm-hmm. it right. He doesn't, he can't really control it. And he says, because everything's already happened. So why do I need to change that? So there's this whole connection between like the connection of, you know, like the ideology of the divine watchmaker, this idea of God. And I think that the whole Dr. Manhattan's entire, entire um, existence in this book is a metaphor for like American and our relationship to God. Like we are a Christian nation. God loves us. We are the best friends with God. The English mm. were not the best friends with God. We were better friends with God. That's why God loves us better than he loves China. Right. Right. Um, and so like all of that is connected into that idea of the divine watchmaker and that intelligent design um, metaphor. Okay. So then, but with that, maybe that answers our question of why Dr. Manhattan doesn't do anything or like doesn't stand for anything or stop anything or whatever is because if God is the divine watchmaker and all the pieces don't work on their own, they have to be put together. But once they're put together, they out God, God, once the clock is ticking, you can't take it apart and you can't, can't put it and, back. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. So once the watch is clicking, once you put it together, maybe that's the role of God. God puts it together, but once it's put together, there's nothing anyone can do about it. But that still sticks with God is not all powerful because if he would, he'd find a way to clock the clock. Okay. I have one more thing that I have to ask you about because I, what the fuck was the Max Shea stuff? The Max Shea? The like guy, there's like a guy that was missing or something. Max Shea. Is he the writer of Writer of um, the Black Freighter? Yeah. Oh, I think he was part of the people that wrote the story, like the story that, because he was bringing all those people together. So like, that was the thing he was doing. Like all these people start going missing, like these scientists Uh and these geneticists and like all these people Uh start going missing and people don't know what's happening to that. They were all the people that were coming together to create that giant monster. 
Like oh, uh, Ozzy Mandius yeah, took all of that. Yeah, he took all oh, of those people. Those were the and people. like used their brains. Yeah, to so do like it. he was like, "How do we do this?" And he had all these the smartest people in the world coming up, building toward this one ideology. Got it. Thank you. I I missed that. Okay, here's my last kind of questions about this: the legacy of Watchmen. Everything I saw when I first picked this, when we first picked this book, I just did a quick Google search, and it was like, Watchmen has changed comic books forever. It changed the genre. And also Watchmen is the greatest comic of all time. Those are the two things that I saw. How does Watchmen do those things? How, why is it the best? What is it, what did it do in the time or since the time that it came out that makes it the one? Well, just, just the fact that we're still talking about like all of the different themes that you can run through, like in a lot of ways were very, um, had been up until, when we talked about this previously, where I talked about the idea of like comics being unserious. I mm. mean, don't get me wrong. There's some great things happening in comics um, up until the 1980s. Um, there's a lot of really um, people are exploring. This is when, you know, Mouse started, was started to, um, Art Spiegelman started writing Mouse before um, we got mm-hmm. up the complete book in the 1990s. But it was basically taking the superhero genre and asking a lot of questions about mm. like, does this really make sense? Like, mm-hmm. real, like when because when you expand this out, it becomes silly, right? Like the idea of superheroes <laughs> becomes silly. Um, and and I keep going back to this idea that T'Challa doesn't seem silly because he is protecting his country, as mm-hmm. opposed to somebody who is protecting um, their city in this in this really weird way. And so I think by questioning the ideas of what superheroes it are, mm-hmm. it actually creates new kinds of superheroes. Um, and you get new kinds of stories and, and expanding on this idea that comics can be a lot deeper, especially superhero comics can be a lot deeper than this really shallow adventure action and adventure sort of thing that was happening before. And don't get like, I'm not saying this, I don't think people are going to get mad at me, but action and I'm not saying action adventure is shallow. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that I'm saying that it, it was very one dimensional. It was all action and adventure. And so you get some really good action and adventure, but the most, mm-hmm. like the majority of it was just boilerplate. Like I can see this coming from a mile away. And I so see. when people, when people read a combination of books in the 1980s, they read um, the dark Knight returns, Watchmen, swamp thing, and a bunch of other sort of dark and sort mm-hmm. of um, much more adult themes booked. That's when comics sort of start, people start looking at comics like I was um, I was a kid in the 1980s. So like Watchmen didn't hit me, but it's like the generation, like probably the people who are 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. That's when they started seeing things and going stories can be different than what mm. we've always been reading. And so it basically changes the game. I mean, out we talked about um, Asterius Polyp and I talk about the concept of carved comics. Like he's doing things with word balloons that you see in Watchmen, right? The non-panel grid that's slowly, like the metaphor of the black freighter. Like those are things that I don't think people really played with as much in I comics see. before that. And I think after the fact, you can see a lot of people doing really adult themed comics. I think somebody in one of the threads said Saga was really great. If you haven't read Saga, mm-hmm. you should go read it because it's, it's, it's long. So read like the first book and then maybe you'll be hooked. But it's really, really a great story. It's like a fantasy Romeo and Juliet. But there are a lot of things that happen because of Watchmen that I don't think would have happened if Watchmen had not been, a, been the book it was. I love it. Um, I think we're out of time, but do you have anything else you want to add or 
talk about briefly before we get out of here that we missed? Because I know we didn't get everything. Yeah, I think it's really important to to recognize the trigger warnings with with Watchmen. Um, mm. Just like so people. <laughs> Glad we're going to recognize that at the very end. Yeah, at the very end. Um, <laughs> you know, my students always tell me I get really excited about stuff and I forget to say like, oh, there's some problematic things in there. But you know, like, yeah. it's like I said, there, there's, there's problematic things in there and this isn't, there's never, there's never a reason to do that because people are calling out the problematic things at the time. Um, I also think it's really important to read this in the, and, and get the ideas that he's, he's dealing with, like these really complicated ideas about form that he's using and political ideology. I think it's like, take all of this in. It's a really great book and um, recommend it to a friend. I love it. So just for people who are listening now, I think, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure that the bonus episode this month is going to be David Dennis Jr. and I talking about the show in a lot of detail. So if you read the book but haven't watched the show now, you should watch the show and then join the Stacks Patreon because we're going to do a deep dive and get a little more into the show because we couldn't do all of that here today. Um, So if you're interested, we're going to do more on the show. Everyone, Joel has books in the world. His most recent is the graphic adaptation of Stamp from the Beginning. Uh, He has his own memoir called Fights. Joel, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. I'm glad to come. I I love talking about comics. So This was so fun. Well, I'm going to have to do it again. Um, Everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Joel Christian Gill for returning to the show and to David Hawk for helping to make this conversation possible. All right, now it's time for our August book club announcement. Our book is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweki Amezi. It's a romance novel with themes around grief and loss. It is a very controversial pick. People love it. People hate it. I cannot wait to discuss. Make sure you listen next week to find out who our book club guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, you can follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 